We took a ride on the canoe in the afternoon. Myself, Bainimarama, and the president of Kiribati, Fiji canoe, to the end of the lagoon. And then we came back. Very nice ride uh, uh, using the sail. This is Anilea Sopoanga, former Prime Minister of Tuvalu, talking about a canoe ride he took a few years ago with Fijian Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama and Kiribati President Taneji Ma'amau. And then President of Kiribati kept on laughing and I said, what's going on? And he said, no, I, 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 we, bought, we bought the land in, uh, in Fiji. What about you, Tuvalu? I said, I'm not going to buy land in Fiji. I said, why? No way. Because Fiji is filled up with too many Tuvaruans everywhere. You find more Tuvaruans than Fijians. And Bainimarama was laughing. Kiribati and Tuvalu are two low-lying Pacific countries considered most at risk of being submerged due to sea level rise. On the canoe, Bainimarama discussed the offer of land in Fiji if Tuvalu should need it. Sopoanga respectfully declined. Of course I explained to Bainimarama, thank you very much. But there are two main reasons why I took that stand. His first reason was to stand firm on a point he was trying to make to other global leaders. The message I wanted to portray to the world is that The problem they caused climate change, they cannot simply allow Tuvalu and Fiji, especially Fiji, to solve the problems for them. It is a consequence of their industrialization that caused global warming and caused climate change. And his second reason was because Fiji was already dealing with enough. Relocating the Tuvaluans there would simply complicate, exacerbate those issues unfairly on the Fiji people. And all those social problems will be just thrown at, at the Fijians. So I thank Ben Marma, but quietly I said, no way. This is such a classic island story. I can just see it. Three Pacific Island leaders talking about one of the biggest political issues on the planet in a canoe. For me, this story captures a very real question at a personal, family and island level. There are choices to make, to stay or to go. It may not be at the front of mind for Pacific Islanders as we go about our day, but it's a prospect that cannot be ignored. In this episode, some of the Guardian's Pacific reporters head out to talk to leaders and community members across the region about how they're grappling with this choice. As the climate crisis threatens the very existence of our homes, will Pacific communities have to leave our islands? Or can we find a way to remain? In preparation for our trip over to the Saposa Islands region, we had to organize a banana boat. This is Kalalaina Fainu. 
She's a regular reporter for The Guardian based in Papua New Guinea. And a banana boat is like a long, skinny, dingy kind of boat for jumping around the islands. It, it was raining a little bit on that day, so the boat boys started doing a flicking action with their hand. This was something that the Bougainvilleans do to deter the rain and send it away with a signal. So they're there flicking the fingers and pushing the rain and the clouds and saying, just make a path for us. Kalo is traveling from Bougainville to the Saposa Islands. They are one of the many island groups that have been feeling the impact of sea level rise. Islanders there and in the nearby Kataret Islands have already started making the incredibly difficult choice to leave their homes for Bougainville. So as the climate change is affecting every part of this island. The first person Kalo met was Paramount Chief John Wesley on the Saposan island of Torosian. He led me on a little tour around the island, down past the ocean, past a few local homes, the sea levels and the impact that you could see clearly along the shoreline. The big king tide that came this way the other day, the sea came in from this way and this way. Therefore, this place was filled up with water. It's about 2.5 meters rise. Those boats, they came from town, came in and spin around the place. About two, three boats. So John Wesley is also a civil engineer and he's really been leading the way on the building of the seawall at the front of the school area on Torotsian Island. And he showed me the seawall, which the, a lot of the students had helped make, which is designed to prevent some of the king tides coming into the schoolyard area. Because when these king tides come in, the water levels are so high that people can actually take their canoes onto the school field. So obviously every time that the waters come in, it damages uh, buildings and the garden areas. Next, Kalo met Aranit Kaito. She's a school teacher who has lived on Torosian Island her whole life. She says she's seen many changes since she was a child. Places here, especially the beach area, it's like the sea is wearing away the sand and uh, the island is like getting smaller. She's teaching her students about climate change and workshopping solutions with them. We talk about these changes occurring in our areas and we try to find ways to at least come up with some ways that can help to manage and help us to find some way to stop activities like soil eroding. Arani students are learning how to build seawalls around Torotsian Island, and they're using rice bags uh, filled with coral and shells to create these seawall protection. You know, this 
relatively small seawall was probably not doing much at all to help their situation, but it was just something that they could do within their capacity to try and help as much as they could with what they have. This is what defines the Pacific spirit of survival. Even in the face of all odds, islanders simply do not give up. Next, Carlo met with Bobby Soma. He now lives in Bougainville, but we caught up with him in Totowa Island in the Saposa region to show us his home now partially underwater due to sea level rise. Uh, when I was a boy, I saw that this island was bigger and large uh, from 1960 land mass is really small and so the, the ocean is literally lapping at everybody's doorstep. Uh, people are really living on top of each other because there is just nowhere else to, to build a home and there is absolutely nowhere to grow your own produce. So all the food that comes into the island has to come from somewhere else. Uh, before, we can plant banana here. Uh, we make planting banana and we have some uh, coconut trees in here and some breadfruit. But from now on, we, we, can, we can plant anything in here because you, you look in here, the soil is only like sand. So that's no hope for us. It was for these reasons that Bobby decided to move to the mainland. It's hard for some of us, our new, new generation to move because that's where our mother uh, uh, our mother lived and they give birth to us. And I make my way to move out from here so that I, people can see me as a model. Uh, they can make up their mind too and we, we can just leave this island and we, we move to the big mainland and we can help to sustain our living there. But it's not just the people from the Saposa Islands who are relocating to the mainland of Bougainville. Saltwater inundation, frequent flooding, and the constant threat of extreme weather events has made it untenable for many across the region to remain. This is especially true for the people of the Katarit Islands. They made headlines about a decade ago for being the world's first climate refugees when they started leaving their homes for Bougainville. To find out more, Carlo met with Ursula Rakova. I was born on Katritz, on Han Katritz uh, Islands, um, and I grew up on the island. Ursula had the sort of typical childhood one would expect of someone who has grown up on a beautiful tropical island. And we love the sea because after school, we, we would go home, change and get into our little canoes and um, go out fishing. And so life was fun. 
and life was in trouble. We didn't see uh, a lot of what is happening right now. We didn't really witness a lot of king tides like we do now, uh, frequent storm surges. The sea also didn't go and destroy our food gardens like it does now. So it was life for us, peaceful. King tides are a huge problem on small islands because the volume of water that comes into such a small place is quite catastrophic. It comes up into people's homes, it goes into the garden and onto their crops, which kills their food, basically. And so we, we are trying to um, protect the shorelines from eroding fast by building seawalls. But we also know that the backside of the island is where the strong currents are coming from. And so we, we've got to do a lot more than just the seawalls. And so we, we are trying to plant mangroves so that um, the, the three different species of mangroves can basically be uh, the protective measures of what we are establishing on the island. But Ursula and the elders and chiefs in her community soon realized the future was too uncertain. It was time to start looking for somewhere safe to move people. Working with the local government, they built a relationship with the town of Tinputs in Bougainville and have been slowly moving Carteret families there. We are almost 12 years old now. Um, we have successfully relocated 10 families in, on this site. And we hope to relocate another 10 families in our second site. The area of Tinports where the Kateret Islanders have been relocated to is next to an old Catholic mission. It's not too far away from the seaside. They've been given some land there to be able to build homes. They've been given water tanks. They have little blocks of land where they can grow their fresh produce. And also they've all been allocated little cocoa blocks so that they can also generate some income in their new location. So basically the families here are sustaining their own lives. They sell surplus food, garden food, uh, back to, to the markets here, to the local markets here. Ursula's motivation is for her people to have control over their future. I don't want my people to continue to become dependent on the government. I want, you know, my people are proud people and we are proud islanders. We want to be independent. We want to pave the way for ourselves and we want our decisions to be decisive so that we lead by example. And I think today we are leading by example. We are impacted by a lot of factors, but we are not sitting down and crying out loud, come and help us. We are helping ourselves. And this is the motivation. If people are willing to help themselves, I want to help them. And I want to be there to provide that guidance and leadership to my people. Next on our trip around the Pacific, Tuvalu. 
Tuvalu is no more than a speck on a map of the Pacific Ocean. It is one of the smallest countries in the world by land size and population, and it is extremely vulnerable to the climate crisis. Already, two of its nine islands are on the verge of complete erosion and inundation. Most of the islands sit barely three meters above sea level. At this rate, scientists predict Tuvalu would become uninhabitable in the next 50 to 100 years. Locals say they feel it could be much sooner. Angel! Hello. Here in the main settlement, it takes you about half an hour to ride on the motorbike to the other end of the island. Puase Ese Adrian Pedro is a reporter with the Tuvalu Broadcasting Corporation. Pua spent a few days on her motorbike traveling around and speaking to Tuvaluans about how they feel about the climate crisis. We have just one season throughout the year that is hot. The sound that we hear every day is just wind. And at night and, and during daytime, we hear the waves. The first person Pua met was a woman who had lost her entire home during a recent cyclone. I heard about this widow by the name of Pualuki. She lives here on Funafuti, the main capital of Tuvalu, and her house has been recently blown away by cyclone. Pualuki told me that her old house had been just a small hut that sat very close to the sea, so when a strong wind came, it blew her house meters away. This house of hers was situated just a meter away from the sea. Now, there was nothing left. She is now in her new house, which is maybe two-thirds incomplete. When I talked to her, she said that it's very hard to keep the work going because of the wind. I mean, they are right in the middle of the part of the island where it is very windy, very close to the lagoon and very close to the ocean. She explained that she was staying there because she loved it and that she would never move away. She said that for her, the main reason to stay was so that she could continue to live on her own land and never on somebody else's land. This to me is what Pacific Islanders excel at the most. Survival. After a cyclone, we don't wait around for help. We rebuild our own homes. Between the village, we share tools and materials sometimes even a single wheelbarrow, because it's about our community, not the individual. Later that day, Pua met with an elderly man by the name of Saosi Finiki. He also lives in Funafuti, in a house that's been in his family for generations. When I ask Siaosi what his thoughts are on climate change, he tells me that it's real and that it's taking away their land. 
he is now in his late 80s, and he said that when he was a young man, the main settlement here on Funafuti was just a small area. And this main settlement was surrounded by trees and all that. He said that big change has taken place. Just by looking at the number of people residing here, there are houses built from the other end of the island to the other end of the island. I asked Yossi what Funafuzi was like when he was younger. He remembers more trees around their homes, and he says the air would always smell like Frenchie Penny. Now he says all you can smell is diesel, fuel, and dust. But as we have heard from other communities in this episode, the biggest issue is not being able to grow food. The seawater is contaminating the soil, and because of increasing droughts, there's not enough rainwater to keep simple kitchen gardens alive. Siasi says there are shops everywhere and people are mostly relying on imported foods from the shops. He said the impacts of that can be seen everywhere, describing people having to have limbs amputated because of diabetes. Siasi tells me that he is not going anywhere, he's not moving anywhere, he will stay here, but he is worried for the future of the young Tuvaluans here. He says the cultures and traditions of the island are slowly fading away. She also says the younger generation are more interested in what's happening in Australia and New Zealand, where many of the population have moved to. He says they will never come back because they are scared. Next, Boa met a young woman named Jeanette Pedro near the main government buildings in the capital of Funafuti. She hopped on my motorbike and I dropped her home. Jeanette tells me that this will always be her home. Because this is where my dad, mom, auntie, grannies, uncles, and I was brought up. This is home, so... And it has a lot of memories. I do have a lot of memories here. And that is why it is so special to me. But Jeanette worries about her future here. I'm worried if I don't get to have a land in the future to build my own house. And for my children and their children and so on. So now it's small. And due to the overcrowding and... The climate changes and its effects. There won't be enough land for all of us. While talking with Jeanette, she tells me that she doesn't have any plans at all to leave. I do have friends that have already migrated because they don't see their futures here. And some are also planning on living. Living is not an option. It is very important because it is my identity. When I go out of Tuvalu, there are different people from different places and they'll know where I'm from, from what I do, what I wear, the language I speak. Jeanette is now studying law so she can stand up for the rights of all Tuvaluans. 
I am fighting for Tuvalu's future because I don't want us, Tuvaluans, to be scattered around the world. We were taught that due to the air pollution from factories in big countries, the ices are tend to melt and because of that our sea level rises. I'm planning on becoming a lawyer to fight for my rights and for the rights of the Tuvaluans. We are Tuvaluans and this is Tuvalu. We belong here. To Tuvalu. Tuvalu is not giving up. They're looking into options to remain and have set up programs like reclaiming coastal lands eroded by the sea, building seawalls and expanding mangrove forests to stop soil erosion, and as a buffer against rising tides and aggressive storm surges to protect their homes. Like many Pacific Island leaders, Tuvalu is also at the forefront of the fight to have the world take the climate crisis seriously. Like in Elisa Puonga, the former Prime Minister of Tuvalu, who we heard from at the start of this episode. His journey into leadership began as a boy in a small fishing village. Starting from a very simple life in village, catching crabs, catching fish and growing banana and all those things. He used his time and power to advance discussion on the right to remain on their islands, taking on world leaders at the UN and demanding they take action against climate change. It will be shameful for the whole of humanity to ever allow Tuvalu to disappear. Every single year wasted with no actions on climate change draws Tuvalu a year closer to its total demise from Earth. He fought to raise the profile of his small island nation and helped the world see that Tuvalu is at the very front lines of the climate crisis and ultimately coined the term that is now a global climate catchphrase, save Tuvalu and you'll save the world. I have always been uh, res- you know, resisting, uh, resistant rather, to the uh, option of moving away from Tuvalu and relocation. And this is an issue I've been uh, speaking against. Uh, I, I think it is terminal. It is de- self-defeating uh, in the sense that, uh, that the people of Tuvalu in that context would be simply um, uprooted from their home and relocated physically. I think we need to keep that as possibly the last option on the minds of Tuvaluans. But like many Tuvaluans, Sopoanga has had to watch many of his own family slowly depart from the island. Some of my brothers and sisters, they decided to move on to New Zealand and, and live there. We are worried that our kids in the future will not have a happy life because of climate change. But for me, it is very difficult. I may come for a visit, but I live in Tuvalu, and uh, I don't, as a former leader, I have always uh, been trying to impress on people we are on the same canoe. If the canoe sinks, we all sink. But our duty is to keep that canoe afloat. And that's where I am. That's why I am on that canoe. 
That canoe, or the va'a as we call it in most parts of Polynesia, should provide some sort of hope for the Pacific as the world prepares for the meeting of world leaders in Glasgow for the annual UN Climate Change Summit, or COP26. As negotiators gather, the images of Tuvalu and the voices of Tuvaluans should be regarded as a reality check, for the decisions made in those meetings have real consequences for the atoll nations of the Pacific. An Impossible Choice was produced by AudioCraft's Laura Briley-Newton and Jess Beneth. Executive producers are Kate Lyons and Jess Beneth. Sound and mix by John Chia. Additional research by Joshua McDonald. And I'm your host, Langipoiva Sherelle Jackson. Oh